Take your Bible with me this morning, if you will, and open to the book of Philippians chapter 4. If you're joining us for the very first time, we're studying in the book and through the book of Philippians. And we've arrived at chapter 4, and we're going to look at just the first three verses of chapter 4. Actually, verses 4, 5, 6, and forward go with these first three verses, sort of follow up as instruction after these first three verses, but we're going to focus our attention on just these first three verses today. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Just so that you get a little understanding of the church that was in Philippi, this was a church that would be considered a pastor's dream. Every pastor would wish to be called to a church like this. It was a church that was close to the heart of the Apostle Paul. It was a blessing from the Lord. Uh, Twice here, he calls them his beloved, my beloved, at the first of verse 1, and then at the end of verse 1, my beloved again. And so this was a church that meant a great deal to the Apostle Paul. He even refers to them as his ministerial joy and crown. And there's some great truth there that we're going to pass over. But this was a church that was very special very special to the Apostle Paul. They had helped him and been faithful to him in supporting him throughout the course of his ministry. They had participated with him in the work of the gospel. Uh, They loved reaching people for Christ. It was a church that was theologically and doctrinally sound, and it was a church that was filled with loving and friendly people. But in spite of all of that, there was an elephant in the room. It was something that a lot of people probably just tried to ignore, tried not to pay attention to, hoped that they wouldn't have to address, but the Apostle Paul isn't going to do that. He's going to address the elephant in the room. And that elephant involves two ladies that are at odds with one another, and their conflict was threatening to tear the church apart. To be honest with you, I don't know anything that steals the joy or slows down the work of God more than division and disunity in God's church. And I'm thankful over the years of my ministry here that God has given us incredible unity year after year after year. Uh, People who are at odds with one another, people that are always finding something wrong, people that regularly find themselves in arguments are miserable people. They might not know it, but they are miserable people. They are joyless people, and they can make for a joyless church. Of course, living in harmony with others isn't always easy, is it? In any organization, whether it's a business or whether it's a team or or whether uh, it's some other kind of successful organization, there are always going to be those times when the spirit of cooperation is challenged. It'll be challenged by some people who get at odds with one another and are squabbling with one another, but the result is that it may just be a few squabbling, but the whole ends up suffering in the process. 
And the same is true of churches. If you even thought for a moment that there was a church somewhere that existed that didn't have people that got at odds with one another, then you're, you're living in la-la land. People are people, whether they're on this side of the earth or the other side of the earth, and even in the best churches, as was the church at Philippi, they had their share of struggles. As long as people are involved, there are going to be conflicts. One of the things that I did not realize when I entered the ministry more than 40 years ago, I knew there would be conflicts. I knew there would be problems. I knew there would have to be things to be resolved. But I just didn't realize how entrenched Christian people would become about secondary, non-essential issues, and they would fight to the death if necessary. And yet it happens all too often. And in the process, they destroy churches as a result. I'm reminded of a story I heard about two ladies that were traveling by train. This is back when trains, you could lower and raise the windows on a train. And they were in a squabble about opening or closing a window on the train. And one of them said, if you lower that window, I'm going to suffocate to death. And the other woman said, if you don't lower this window, I'm going to die of pneumonia. And they went back and forth arguing with each other about that window, whether to leave it open or whether to close it. Finally, one of the other passengers just got tired of hearing them squabble, and she said, why don't you just lower the window until you die of suffocation, and then raise the window until you die of pneumonia, then the rest of us can have a little bit of peace. (laughs) I don't know that I've ever said it quite that way, but I have felt that sentiment at times. Maybe you have as well. Did you know that conflict even exists in marriage? Duh. Conflicts, conflicts rise in marriages as well. Conflict is everywhere. I'm reminded of an elderly couple that lived together in a nursing home. They'd been married for 60 years, but their relationship was not one of peace and contentment. As a matter of fact, it was constantly filled with arguments and disagreements and shouting contests. You ever been with a family that shouted at one another? So when they moved to the nursing home, it didn't stop. It just continued right on. They would argue and squabble from the time they got up in the morning to the time they went to bed at night. And finally, the nursing home administration had had it. We're not going to put up with this anymore. If you don't figure out how to get along with each other, we're going to have to put you out. They couldn't decide on how to get along and how to agree with one another, even about this particular matter. So finally, the wife said to her husband, I'll tell you what, Joe, let's pray that one of us dies. And after the funeral's over, I'll go live with my sister. (laughs) And if you didn't get it, you'll have to think about it for a few minutes. The fact is that the division in the Philippian church that we're reading about here in the fourth chapter wasn't the result of doctrinal impurity. It wasn't the result of some massive failure of morality. It wasn't the result of ministerial malfeasance. It wasn't the collapse of church polity, church order. It wasn't the result of the loss of evangelistic zeal. And it wasn't due to some kind of church financial crisis. The division that's existing in the Philippian church is the direct result of two ladies that couldn't get along with each other. It could have been two men. It could have been a man and a woman. 
But on this occasion, it's two ladies that simply can't get along with each other, and their disagreement is apparently very public. And stop and think for a moment. If it's public in the first century, can you imagine, can you imagine if they had had social media? How bad it would have gotten. But I've got good news for you. Paul refused to ignore the elephant in the room. And he calls out these two contentious women. He does it in a kind way, but he does it in a very direct way. Because this particular issue was dividing the church. These two women were dividing the church. People were rallying around these two women and their two perspectives and creating conflict within the church. And apparently, apparently, Paul didn't take a course on how to win friends and influence people. You know why I know that? Because he actually names them. He didn't speak about them in generalities. He specifically calls them by name. Now think about that for a moment. He calls them by name. I've decided maybe that's the way to deal with conflict in our church. Just start listing the names of people in conflict on the big screens. Just call it out. Talk about the elephant that's in the room. That's what the Apostle Paul did. And can you imagine having your name written by God in inspired scripture in these kinds of circumstances to be read for all time? And yet that's exactly what happens on this occasion. Think about it for a moment. In the early New Testament church, they didn't have a Bible like you and I have. They had the Old Testament. They didn't have a completed canon of the New Testament. It was still in the process of being written and gathered together. And so when a letter was written to one of the churches from one of the apostles like Paul, they would send that letter to the pastor of the church. And the church meeting, the next time the church meeting got together, the pastor would stand up and he would read the letter to the congregation. And on this occasion, the church at Philippi was excited. Rome has been, excuse me, Paul has been in Rome under arrest. He's facing potential death. They've partnered with him. They love him. He loves them. And they want to know what's going on in the life of Paul. But the, all they know at this moment is that the letter has been written and it has been received. And on Sunday, the pastor's going to read it to the congregation. And they gather on Sunday morning, all the excitement, all the enthusiasm. Maybe there was music playing. Maybe they sang some songs. Certainly, they must have had some times of prayer and fellowship together. But it came time for the reading of the Word of God. And Paul begins reading in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, and everything's pretty cool for a while. But then he gets toward the end of this letter in Philippians chapter 4, and he comes to this little section, and sitting in the congregation that day is Euodia and Syntyche. And he writes, Paul writes, Euodia, and you can imagine that she probably just about swallowed her tongue. Syntyche, and maybe she burst into tears. But can you imagine what it must have been like in those moments? It would be sort of like if I stood here and said, let me tell you about this person and this person that I saw on social media arguing with each other this week. You can imagine how uncomfortable that situation would be. 
It had to be extremely uncomfortable for these two women. And yet, the only reason that Paul would speak to these women so urgently is because their conflict is affecting the rest of the congregation. It's affecting the whole of the body of Christ. If their personal squabble had just been a usual occurrence that the church was basically a a unified congregation, then pointing them out by name like this would have been unjustified and inexplicable. But they got named because what they were saying and what they were doing was causing conflict throughout the congregation. And they got called out for it. John MacArthur observes about this. He says, the tragic conflict between Euodia and Syntyche reveals that even the most mature, faithful, and committed people can become so selfish as to be embroiled in controversy if they are not diligent to maintain unity. And all God's people said, amen. You know, I thought about that. How many things there are right now for us to be in disunity about, let alone the things that come on a normal basis. You add to it a pandemic. You have the face mask or the no face mask crowd. You have the fear that's attached with catching the virus and the potential of dying. You have the lockdown. You have the battle and the debate over whether to go to school or not go to school. You have issues related to all of these things that are happening and going on around us, and you add to it, add to it. Are you with me? You add to it the political element, a political campaign going on. And suddenly you get one person on one side of the auditorium in an argument with somebody else on the other side of the argument of the auditorium in an argument and they're not doing it quietly and privately behind the scenes sometimes they're doing it on social media and you may win your argument but you'll damn somebody's soul to hell in the process and if you don't damn their soul to hell you'll damage the body of Jesus Christ in the process. Unity doesn't mean uniformity, and it doesn't mean unanimity about every issue a church faces. Unity in the body of Christ means that we agree together that the most important thing we do is bring people to faith in Jesus Christ and to do nothing, nothing, nothing to harm that mission. or to harm the harmony and the ministry or the testimony of the local church. Nothing, nothing. D.A. Carson, Dr. D.A. Carson says, Paul is appealing for a mental attitude that adopts the same basic direction as other believers, the same orientation and priorities. That is a gospel orientation. You say, what do you mean? He says here to these two women, he calls out in a public service and names them in inspired scripture. He says to them, to these two women, I want you to be like-minded. Do you know what to be like-minded means? It means to live in love like Jesus. It means to think the same thing as that what's most important is the mission and the harmony and the testimony and the reach of the local assembly and the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We're in agreement on that so that we put aside things that cause division and keep us from accomplishing that purpose. Like-minded. By the way, when you go back and you read through Philippians, I want you to circle that word. You see it. The same mind or like-minded several times through the course of those four chapters. Why? He wants them to come not to unanimity. He doesn't want them to come to uniformity. He wants them to come to unity, to be of the same mind. What's most important here is not Euodia, you winning your argument, or Syntyche, you winning your, you winning your argument. What's most important here are the souls of men and women and the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, his church. That's what's most important. There comes a point in interpersonal conflicts where everyone loses, regardless of how it all started. The toll of backbiting, bitterness, and resentment leaves no one unscathed. It's like what we see during political campaigns today. Let me read that again. It's like what we see with political campaigns today. Paul wisely presses for an end to these matters, not by choosing sides, but by describing what a godly, honorable person would do by raising the standard of Christian conduct. Not to winning the argument, but to being like-minded. I guess you've noticed that there's a lot of things that are dividing people these days. The intersection of gender and race and class are divisive. They use those terms to create warring parties, factions that war against each other. And can I tell you, friends, that the only solution to those matters won't be found in some educational change and it won't be found in a political change. It'll only be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in the gospel where it says that God's not a respecter of person. It's in the gospel where it's neither male nor female, slave nor free. Whether it's neither Jew nor Gentile. It's when the church gathers together around the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ that everybody stands equal at the foot of the cross. There aren't some better than others, and we don't look down on other people. God doesn't look at the color of our skin. God looks at the condition of our hearts. And these two women, arguing with each other in a public fashion, such that it brought disunity to the body of Christ, had forgotten that God was looking beyond the soundness of their argument that was about secondary non-biblical theological issues that he was looking at the condition of their hearts and it wasn't very pretty at that particular moment. I want you to consider that these two women had in common that they were both believers. This isn't that there's one believer and then there's an unbeliever. This is about two women or two unbelievers. This is about two women who profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He says at the end of verse 3, whose names are in the book of life. There's two books talked about in the New Testament, the book of life and the Lamb's book of life. And there's different ways to talk about those two books, but here's the common understanding that the book of life has everybody's name written in it. 
But when unbelievers, those who have not trusted in Jesus, die, their names are erased from the book of life, such that in Revelation 21, when we stand at the great white throne, I shouldn't say we, when the unbelieving world stands at the great white throne judgment, and he opens the Lamb's book of life, the only names that are in it are the names of the believers in Jesus. The book of life has now become the Lamb's book of life containing only the names of those that are saved. And these two ladies were saved. They were both church members. They were both active members of this congregation. They got up and came to church every Sunday. By the way, they had things to face far more dangerous than a pandemic. They got up and they came to church every single Sunday. They were members. They were both members of the same church. They were both fellow laborers with Paul. That's what he says. Help these women who labored with me in the gospel. To labor means they worked hard. It wasn't that they just gave some money or sewed some, uh, some uh, blankets and sent them through the mail. These women were out in the middle of the work helping the apostle Paul. Did you know that the New Testament speaks often about strong women leaders in the New Testament church? Euodia and Seneca were two strong leaders in the church. The New Testament restricts the office of pastor, bishop, or elder, all referring to the same office. To men, it restricts the office of deacon. To men, it restricts the responsibility of the authoritative teaching and preaching of the Word of God. To men, but there are lots of other responsibilities within the church where there's strong leadership given by women. And thank God for it. That would have been a good place for an amen. Thank God for it. Both of these women were theologically sound. There's no indication that this is a theological issue, a doctrinal issue. Paul never hesitated in any of his other letters to ever call out doctrinal error. Have you read the rest of Paul's writings? <laughs> Repeatedly. He calls out this and that where there's doctrinal error involved. He has no problem doing that. He doesn't do that here because this is not a doctrinal issue. If this were a matter of truth, it would be something different. This is a matter of two women who've just gotten at odds with one another over what subject or what matter or how many matters we don't fully know. We just know that it's causing a problem within the congregation. They were both prominent women. These weren't women who were in the shadows Hardly anybody knew who they were. These were women at the core of what was being done and what was being accomplished through the work of the church. They were both equally at fault. He, he doesn't say to Euodia, you're 60% at fault, and Syntyche, you're 40%. Where do we get off doing that when we have disagreements amongst ourselves? Well, well I'm 90% right. You're 10% wrong. <laughs> And they were both poor examples to others in the congregation. Every time you get into an argument with somebody else within the body of Christ, whether you do it when you gather together on Sunday or whether you do it on social media, you're showing yourself to be a poor example to everybody else. Karen Maines is a pastor's wife, and she heard her husband preaching a message uh, from Ephesians 5 one Sunday and she wrote a parable called a brawling bride a brawling bride I want to read it to you 
The wedding guests have gathered in great anticipation. The ceremony to be performed today has been long awaited. The orchestra begins to play an anthem, and the choir rises in proper precision. The bridegroom and his attendants gather in front of the chancel. One little saint, her flowered hat bobbing, leans to her companion and whispered, Isn't he handsome? The response is agreement. My, yes, the handsomest. One by one, the bridesmaids, heralds of the nuptials, begin to stride in measured stride in measured patterns. Several flower girls sew rose petals upon the white, unmarked aisle cloth. The sound of the organ rises, a joyous announcement that the bride is coming. Everyone stands and strains to get a proper glimpse of the beauty. Then a horrible gasp explodes from the congregation. This is a bride like no other. In she stumbles. Something terrible has happened. One leg is twisted. She limps pronouncedly. The wedding garment is tattered and muddy. Great rents in the dress leave her scarcely modest. Black bruises can be seen welting her her bare arms. The bride's nose is bloody and eyes swollen, yellow and purple in its discoloration. Patches of hair look as if they've actually been pulled from her scalp. Fumbling over the keys, the organist begins again after his shocked pause. The attendants cast down their eyes. The congregation mourns silently. Surely the bridegroom deserved better than this. That handsome prince who has kept himself faithful to his love should find consummation with the most beautiful of women, not this. His bride, the church, had been fighting again. She goes on to say, I'm a child of the American church. My early early memories are intertwined with Sunday school teachers, morning worship services, fellowship hours, youth choirs, youth groups, evening evangelistic efforts, midweek prayer meetings, summer Bible camps. I was raised in the church, and much of my adult life has been spent serving the church. I'm all too aware of church splits, minor fracases, non-amicable partings, ecclesiastical skirmishes. In fact, last Sunday after church, someone mentioned an acquaintance who had dropped his attendance. What was the diagnosis? Church hurt somewhere in the past. She continues, the church corporate, that household of the living God, has too often formed itself into a series of the fortified camps, entrenched not against the enemy without, but against the enemy within. Cold, silent wars or outright major offenses, offensives, it doesn't matter which hostilities are occurring. Word bombardments are being unleashed. Slaughter is havocing the board meeting. Bloodshed is launched in the women's ministry. The bride is brawling again. God help us. God help us. That we would brawl and argue and fuss with one another and even do it in the public eye so that everybody else has to be witness to it. If we really loved one another, don't you think we'd find the grace to agree to disagree honorably 
Let me say it again. If we really loved one another, don't you think we'd find the grace to agree, to disagree honorably? And yet, whether it's politics or whether it's wearing masks or whether it's whether the virus is real or not or it's some conspiracy theory, you realize that there's a whole group of people who say if you get the vaccine when it eventually comes out that they're going to implant a chip in your arm in the process so they can track you everywhere you go. Have you lost your mind? You're carrying a chip with you everywhere you go every single day. They already know where you are. And besides, the mark of the beast, you know that number 666? You, excuse my English. This is my Georgia English coming out. You ain't here when it's given out anyway. And yet we get online and we get with friends and we bash one another. If we really loved one another, we would find the grace to agree to disagree honorably. Not to destroy the other person. Not to win the argument. Because you may win the battle, but you'll lose the war in the process. Because you bloody the bride and the lost world is looking in and you're damning souls to hell. It's easy to get behind a keyboard and say whatever you want to say because you're not looking in the face of somebody else. Something that you would never say if you were standing face to face with that individual. So you say, preacher, I, I, I know about a few of those. Yeah, I know about a few too. I've got their names. I'm going to put them on the screen here. Hey, Paul did it, right? Paul did it. I'm not really going to put any names on the screen. I don't even know who all of you are, but you know who you are because right now inside your heart's pounding. You're probably mad at me. It's okay. I'm telling you what the scripture says here. You make your argument with scripture. When I'm, you disprove my argument from scripture, then uh, we'll, we'll change what we're saying. Euodia and Syntyche were arguing with each other. Good women, doctrinally sound women, strong leaders in the congregation, otherwise good people, very prominent, well-known, who just got at odds with one another. They worked together at one time, but got at odds with one another, and now their argument has become so public their names get written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit into the word of the living God to be read for all time. Do you want to be remembered like that? Aren't you thankful we're not still writing inspired scripture? I'd say, Pastor, I need a, a pathway to peace. Well, let me give you nine steps to peace. Number one, admit there's an existing conflict. You know, most people that are in conflict are like an alcoholic or a drug addict. They don't think they're an alcoholic or a drug addict. But the fact of the matter is, there are people who run around looking for a fight, looking for somebody to jump on, looking for an argument. They're trolls on the internet. They go looking for things 
where they can get involved in the argument. Admit there's an existing conflict. Something's not right. Number two, take ownership for your part of the problem. It's not all the other person. It's not all you, Euodia. It's not all you, Seneca. It's both of you. Take ownership for your part of the problem. Number three, reach out to the other person involved. Don't send them an email. Don't instant message them. Don't put something that's a veiled attempt or a veiled attack on social media. Don't call them on the phone. Don't sit across the room from them and refuse to speak to them. The scripture says if you have your brother's offended you, there's something that you have against your brother, you go to your brother and you talk to them face to face. Reach out to the other person involved. Number four, listen carefully to what that person says. Maybe you won't agree on every point, but maybe there'll be some things that you can learn as well as they can learn. Number five, avoid assigning blame. Well, this is your fault. We wouldn't be in this argument if it weren't for you. <laughs> Let me remind you of the words of Solomon. Are y'all with me? Remind you of the words of Solomon. A soft answer turns away, you know the next word? Wrath. A soft answer turns away wrath. Let me give you some more words from Solomon. Only by pride, only by pride comes contention. Only by pride. You know why people argue? Because they are determined they're going to prove themselves right. Hey, if you're right, you don't have to convince anybody else. Just go live according to what you think is right. But don't, in the process, make everybody else's life miserable. Stop assigning blame. Number six, deal with the core issues at hand. Take the personalities out of it. Personalities will always have conflicts. My personality is different to your personality. My gifting is different to your gifting. But you take out those personality issues and you deal with what is the core issue at hand. Use a win-win philosophy. Number seven, use a win-win philosophy. I've always operated this way. When I'm dealing with two people that are in conflict, I try to find a way so that both of them come out of it winners. Not one a winner and one a loser. Number eight, decide on a fair course of action. Okay, I know what the issues are. I understand where we disagree. I know we can't continue like this because it's going to do damage and harm to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how are we going to handle this going forward? And number nine, involve a neutral third party to help. That's what Paul said. Go back to chapter four, verse three. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. What did he say? True companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. What did he say? True companion. Some of your translations may, may read yoke fellow because it's a word that refers to two oxen pulling together in, a, in, in the yoke so that both of them are pulling together. And Paul is writing to somebody. He, knew, he knows who this is. A lot of speculation as to who this particular person is. We're not going to get into that this morning. A lot of speculation about who it is. He knows who it is. And he writes to this person and says, look, you're in the yoke with me, pulling in the same direction I'm going. Now go help these women. And the word help is a very strong word. It has the strong sense of physical action, to seize, to grasp, to apprehend, to catch, to take hold of. 
It was used at the, at the arrest of Jesus. It was used at the arrest of Peter. It was used when the disciples let down their nets and there was a great catch of fish. Another way to say it, if you're putting it in our colloquial language, you'd say, grab them by the nap of the neck and bring them together. Now, not, not literally. <laughs> that, that wouldn't help the problem, but you get my point. Are y'all still with me? You get the point. You grab them by the neck of the neck, the nap of the neck, and you say, hey, we're going to get together. We're going to talk this out. We're going to work this out. And just imagine for a moment. Hear the word imagine. Just imagine for a moment how this might have gone. The pastor at the church at Philippi just finishes reading this letter. Euodia can hardly move her tongue from where she nearly swallowed it. Seneca is over here sobbing. And this peacemaker says to these two women, why don't you come over to my house for supper on Friday night? And one of the women says, I can't get in the same room with her. And the other woman says, well, after all, she said, I don't, want, I don't know if I can be in the same, with her either, same room with her either. And he says, come on, come on. Do it for the cause of Jesus. So they come over to his house on Friday evening. Can you imagine? Just... <laughs> You just got to think this through. Just, just imagine how tense that room was. Are y'all with me here? Just, just imagine how tense the atmosphere in that room. You've never been in a room like that? Oh, then I'm going to bring you with me someday. <laughs> just imagine how tense the atmosphere was. And this true companion, this peacemaker says, you odia. I remember that Sunday when you got saved in Syntyche. I remember that you were the one that personally led her to faith in Christ. We're imagining now. You personally led her to faith in Christ, and suddenly Euodia breaks out in the tears. He says, ladies, I remember when you used to work with Paul getting the gospel out, and what a joy it was on Sunday mornings to see you both out there with smiles on your faces. He goes on. You remember all those times when the invitation came, how you'd walk down the aisle with someone, you'd led to Christ, and everybody rejoiced? God is so good, isn't he? Euodia, Seneca, let's just get down on our knees, and let's just thank the Lord for all the good things he's done for us and for his goodness to us, and let's thank the Lord for saving us, and let's thank the Lord for putting up with us. Thank the Lord for putting up with us. Some people are harder than others, you know. Thank the Lord for putting up with us and all of our failures and faults. And they get down on their knees and they start praying. And Euodia prays for Seneca and Seneca prays for Euodia. And by the time they finish their prayer meeting, they get up and they embrace one another. And they determine to live at peace with each other. To seek the glory of God, the goal of advancing the gospel, and the good of the congregation. Please. The unity of the body of Christ is more important than your petty point that you are determined to make. And let me just remind you, in a political year, whatever party wins in November, God is still in control. And you might actually be working against the plan of God rather than working with the plan of God. Better stop and think about it before you get on social media and you 
start talking about other people in the body of Christ, in the bride of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and beating them up. We don't all have to agree. As a matter of fact, there's some that I don't agree with. But the glory of God and the good of the, of the, of the, of the congregation and the goal of advancing the gospel is far more important than me winning my argument with them. You say, preacher, this is a pretty uncomfortable message. Not if you're not guilty. Not if you're not guilty. No big deal. If you're guilty, it's time to get right with God and say, you know what? There's some things more important than me proving my point when it's not doctrinal and it's not moral and it's not theological. 